Hello, it is Sunday, December 13th. I am Trent Reinsmith, and this is another edition of the Daily Come On Out MMA podcast. And today's topics are going to mostly concentrate on UFC 256 and Dana White. For some reason, I get tagged, and I think this is unfair, with uh, as a quote-unquote hater. And I don't think that that's true by a long shot. I don't like the UFC's business. Um, the way they do business. However, I'm in full support of the fighters and anything to do with the fighters. And so after watching UFC 256, I would have to say that it was one of the best cards of 2020. Um, I know that recency bias is going to play into this and and my terrible memory is also going to play into this, but I just think that top to bottom, uh, UFC 256 did not have a bad fight. Some fighters performed better than others, but all in all, I thought every fight was worth watching. Every fight had some tension, and every fight, many of the fights had some pretty high stakes. And so, top to bottom, early prelim to main event, UFC 256 really delivered. Might be the best pay-per-view card of the year, might be the best card of the year. Again, don't, don't hold me to that because recency bias and terrible memory I have both of those things, obviously. So, but yeah, as far as uh, hating, nothing to hate about this card. Just great, great, all around. Um, everything went well. All the fighters, well, like I said, not everybody performed as well as they could have, but every fight had a story, and every fight had a post-fight story as well. So, you couldn't uh, go wrong by sitting through this, not and sitting through, but not in a bad way by watching this entire event from start to bottom. So I want to go over what I thought about each fight. And in the first fight, Chase Hooper, he won. He won on the uh, via submission. But my question is that did he really win? And I mean that in a, did he actually lose by winning? Now, Chase Hooper has an outstanding ground game. And if this was just uh, BJJ and not MMA, He'd be fantastic. However, it's MMA, and so you judge a fighter by everything they bring to the octagon. And what Chase Hooper does not bring is striking. And he's young. He just turned 21. And so I, I thought that he, win or lose, that he should not have, that he should not be in the UFC. That's not to say that he should not be back in the UFC, but... I think without with his lack of striking acumen, he needs to develop that. He really needs to develop that because he's fighting um, not top-level co competition right now. But sooner or later, he's going to have to fight top-level competition. And if his striking game does not develop, he's going to be in, in deep, deep, deep water. And he won't be able to get out. And so that's why I think he should be an LFA or Titan. Give the kid, and he is a kid, just turned 21, Time to develop his striking. Um, time to develop an all-around MMA game. He is not. He doesn't have that right now, and he's not going to get that in the UFC. I don't think. Just because the pressure to, to fight three or four times a year is there, and at that point you're not developing as much as you're training for the next fight. They're, they are two distinctly different things. So unless Hooper can take time off and fight once or twice a year for the next couple of years. He needs to be developing in 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 a in a lower um, stage MMA um, 
promotion. And that's not a knock against him. He's just, I think, too good at one thing and not a, no, not good enough in another. And that is, is hurting him. And so we'll see where that goes. But I, I really hope he's given time to develop. And I, I think that the best thing for him would be to do so outside the UFC. Bring him back. He had a developmental deal in the first place. Maybe he was brought up too fast. That's what I think. But could be wrong. But um, if you're not good at striking, that can change your your career and your life. And that's something a 21-year-old probably isn't going to think about, but his coaches and the UFC should be thinking about that. Uh, Tisha Torres really needed her win. She was originally booked to face Angela Hill, and she was 1-4 heading into UFC 256. And so she got a bout against a replacement fighter, Sam Hughes. Hughes had to cut a lot of weight, and so her training for the fight was basically making weight. So not the kind of opponent that someone like Tisha Torres should have had, but it she was the kind of opponent that Torres, and I, it's going to sound kind of dismissive towards Hughes, and I don't mean it that way, but she is the kind of opponent that uh, Torres needed. Torres had a win in her most recent fight, but she needed a, uh, a fight, a win that would get her confidence back. And she got that in the Hughes bout. She was very aggressive. She dominated the fight from, from the start. And the finish, which was because Dr. Stoppage, because Hughes said she couldn't see, um, came at the end of the first round. But Torres, that was the kind of uh, confidence builder that she needed and she got. Uh, on, on a second note on this, on this fight, whoever called the doctor in, and I think it was the, the woman that was working for the commission in the, in the corner um, because she was there. And then when she heard the, you can see it on the camera, she was there. And then when she heard the, the conversation between Hughes and her coaches, she was gone. And then the next thing you know, the doctor was in. Um, so I think she's the one who called the doctor in to, and reported what she heard. If that is the case, then that is what is supposed to happen. That's why those people are there um, to alert the judges. I'm, I'm sorry, not to alert the judges, to alert the doctors and the commission that something is awry. And if a fighter says they can't see, well, that's something that's awry and the doctor needs to be told. I didn't like the way Cormier handled that by saying that, you know, basically implying don't tell the doctor if you can't see. If you can't see, don't fight. It's, it's, I know we talk about toughness in this sport, but we also have to talk about, you know, being smart. If your eye is damaged enough where you can't see, it might be time. Well, it is time. It's time to not fight. You can't fight well with one eye. And in the back of your mind, there's always going to be the, holy shit, what is wrong with my eye? You can deal with a cut because you can see that in the, in the, on the monitors. Your eye, you don't know what's going on. So, I don't agree with anyone that says, if you can't see, don't tell anyone. I, I'm more of the, uh, if you can't see, tell someone because you don't get paid enough to, to risk your long-term health and, and vision. No way. So I think what happened um, with the doctor was the right thing to do. I think the com commentators discouraging fighters from opening their mouths about this thing was a dumb thing to do, and I wouldn't recommend that. You don't make any money in... You hardly make money in the UFC. You need to protect yourself. And if you need to call her, call your own fight because your vision is not is shot in one eye, then do so. You don't don't play with your future, especially not for twelve thousand dollars. Come on, uh, Gavin Tucker 
Gavin Tucker had an excellent performance. He fought Billy Quantillo, and uh, we would we uh, the commentators definitely expected Quantillo to uh, be set the pace, and he did for the first round. But then Tucker kind of figured that out, and then he set the pace for the second and third. He he tired Quantillo out, um, but Quantillo also tired himself out by the way he was striking. He was throwing everything with uh, with an intention of ending the fight. And when Quantillo missed, you saw that he missed huge. When Tucker missed, he missed by inches. He was able to keep himself in position even if he missed a strike. The same can't be said about Quantillo. And that gave Tucker energy for a longer period of time and sapped the energy of Quantillo. So Tucker has developed at 34 into a very well-rounded fighter. His, his wrestling was very good in this fight. His striking was excellent. Had a lot of takedowns, and for the pat for the uh, the final ten minutes of the fight, he looked excellent. So I was very impressed by Gavin Tucker, um, and I think at, because of his age, he's thirty four. The UFC is going to have to kind of push him quicker than uh, usual. But I, I from what I saw here, he is he's ready. Uh, Quarantillo is not a big name fighter, but he is a tough fighter and he is someone who can um, really outwork people so it was a good win for Tucker uh, Rafael Fizayev and I'm butchering that name I'm sure he looked fantastic again um, his last fight he showed just great transition from defense to offense in his striking and this fight he just looked excellent all around um, his combinations were perfect uh, his his power was good his selection of strikes was good, and um, he finished Moicano. Um, and whoever says that Moicano was going to come back from that, from that, from the blows that finished the fight, no, no. Um, I'm no, you know, Dana White said that the finish was good, and if because he saw the whole thing, not just what was on the, the TV monitors, I agree with that. And you know that Dana White and I don't agree on much, but Moicano was not coming back from that from that finishing uh, combination. And I, what I liked about that combination was the, the left body shot, and then he hit him with the right. But he didn't just hit him with the right. He hit him with the right and kind of followed through and pushed Mokano's head back a few inches, and that, that pushing him back with the right gave him a perfect spot to throw the left hook that ended the fight. Um, just a great setup for that combo and for, for the finishing blow. So I am very impressed with him. And again, no matter what Joe Rogan says or Daniel Cormier says, Moicano was not coming back from that. He was just going to get hurt more. It was a good stoppage. And let's, let's, uh, let's err on the side of early stoppages rather than later. Um, anytime. Let's, let's always do that. But this wasn't an early stoppage. Speaking of Rogan, and Cormier. I've said this at UFC 255, and I'm going to repeat it here. Either Rogan needs to step away, or the UFC needs to pair Rogan with someone who is not Cormier. They seem too focused on cracking each other up and making jokes and entertaining each other, and it really takes away from the broadcast. And they're both also pretty biased in their in their commentary. Maybe biased is the wrong word, but they pick a narrative and they can't get off the tracks of that narrative. 
we we've seen that with uh, commentators forever in the UFC. Once they start favoring someone, that's it. That's all they see. And even if the fight switches and goes to the other fighter, they're going to stick with the one that they were on track for from the beginning. It's I don't know why that is. Maybe it's hard to make the adjustment. Maybe they're just so tuned into that fighter that they can't break out of that path. But Rogan does that. Cormier does that. Um, Dominic Cruz does that. And let's also not forget that some of these commentators call fights of their teammates and partners and um, folks they coach, which needs to be addressed. And either they need to bring that up from the get-go or excuse themselves from those fights because that too does not sit well with me. But yeah, I don't like, I don't like Rogan any, I never really liked Rogan, but he was tolerable. Um, he just seemed bad when he came back from that decent break that he had before 255. And now again, it, an unimpressive outing from Rogan and I'm, I'm, I'll stop shitting on him now, but I do think he should retire. Cub Swanson. Uh, Swanson was one and four in his past five fights, and he was coming off a leg injury from a PJJ tournament or, or um, match. And there was some concern about that leg, and he took uh, he took some some heavy leg kicks early from Daniel Pineda, and he ate him. But he was he was uh, he was not doing well with those leg kicks, and you could tell they hurt him. But uh, he came back from them. And once he took control of the fight, and he did take control of the fight, um, Swanson's confidence, you could see it swell. You could see Cub Swanson's confidence swell. He lowered his hands, and he just looked for openings, patiently looked for openings to land his strikes, and he finished the fight. And it was a big win for, for Cub Swanson. He was one of the guys that I thought might be on the chopping block if he had not won, but he won, and he left no uh, question about that fight. He still has a lot of gas in the tank, and that I'm glad for that because Cub Swanson, WEC Cub Swanson, UFC Cub Swanson, is a fighter that you know I, I enjoy watching, and I like seeing when the uh, these quote unquote older guys can still hang um, in the UFC. So great win from Cub Swanson. Um, again, this. Like Tisha Torres, this should be a confidence builder for him. And it's it was a very good win for him. Cyril Ghosn. Um, Cyril Ghosn could be a player at heavyweight. But if folks are looking at him and seeing a knockout monster and expecting him to kind of be a, I don't know, someone who's just going to go in there and, and send people to the hospital, I think those folks might be disappointed. Ghosn is a... Excellent kickboxer. And what we saw in the Junior Dos Santos fight is that he is also a very patient kickboxer. He fought to keep his opponent at distance for the for as, as long as he needed to. And then he frustrated Dos Santos and made him come in sloppy. And that's how he got his finish. And I think that's going to be kind of a pattern with him. Um, he's got the length. He's got the skill to work from that length. And he is going to be a kick-based fighter. And he is also not going to be someone who is going to, from the from all his from all appearances, he's not going to be someone who's going to just try and entertain the fans. He's someone who's going to try and get the win, try and get the stoppage. But if he can't do that through his style, he's not going to adjust that style. So I think he'll be an entertaining fighter. I think he'll may be someone who can do a lot of damage in the heavyweight division. 
but I don't think he's going to be the kind of fighter that fans are really looking for in the heavyweight division just because of his patience and his ability as a as a kickboxer. Um, I think that might hurt him with some fans, but when he does get a knockout like he did um, on Saturday, he's going to be someone that fighters, I mean, uh, fans love. So could be a mixed bag for Cyril Gaon, but I, I'm 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 going to watch his fights because I like his style, but others. Maybe not so much. So Santos, um, four knockout losses in a row. And Dana White said after the fight that he might have to think about his future. But though Santos is a guy who probably gets a decent pay. And I think the UFC should think about his future for him. And by that, I mean you know, he should be probably fighting. If he's going to continue fighting, if he wants to continue fighting, he should be doing so at a lower level. Uh, because four knockout losses in any division in the UFC is terrible. In the heavyweight division, it's more so because of the damage that can get done from the strikes. So if Dos Santos wants to continue fighting, he probably should do so elsewhere where the competition is not as uh, high level and as devastating. I would say that it's probably time for him to retire, but I don't get to make that call. But UFC should release Dos Santos. Um, he should be among the cuts that are, that are coming. Speaking of releasing and maybe past um, their prime, Jacare Souza got starched by Kevin Holland. Um, Holland was extremely aggressive, and Souza was knocked out from a blow that Holland threw from his butt. And that's not to say that the that that blow wouldn't have knocked anyone else out. It probably would have just because of the torque that was on it. But Souza, um, again, one of those fighters I think who was on the block and should probably. If he wants to continue fighting, probably be doing it um, elsewhere. And Kevin Holland, he's the fighter of the year contender. He went 5-0 in 2020, and he's just an entertaining fighter inside and outside the octagon. He talks trash, um, but I don't know if it's you know hateful or hurtful. It's just kind of more entertaining. Um, he's got a lot of confidence. He's got a lot of swagger, and I don't know if, I mean, I'm sure some of that is just inflated and uh, kind of a caricature, and I think that's what makes... Holland funnier and, and more entertaining than some other people who try too hard with their trash talk. Like when he confronted Adesanya, I think those two are built for that kind of trash talk where they know they're not really, it's serious, but not 100% serious and they can have fun with it, not get offended and not take it to an ugly level like some other fighters do. Um, Holland knows he's not <laughs> ready to fight Israel Adesanya yet and Adesanya knows that as well. So I think when they went back and forth, it was more entertainment and just, you know, I see you, you see me, and we're going we're gonna to be doing this for a while, and sooner or later, we're going to fight. So I think Kevin Holland's an extremely entertaining fighter, and any, any uh, accolades he's earned in 2020, um, he deserves. And let's not forget that Dana White, self-proclaimed fight genius Dana White, said at one point that he wasn't going to take Kevin Holland. He passed him by in the contender series because Holland had a big mouth. And so whatever White says now, take that with a grain of salt, because he did not sign Kevin Holland because he thought he talked too much, which is kind of bullshit and shows you what kind of a judge Dana White is of a fighter. If he if a guy's running his mouth, he says that he's not a good fighter. And I think that's more to do with the way the UFC markets than the talent of the fighters, because Holland is definitely a talented fighter. But he's also a fighter who's going to put the spotlight on himself and make sure he gets his time on the camera. 
And as we know, that's a no-no in the UFC. You can't put the camera on yourself. It has to go to Dana White first. Uh, Mackenzie Dern, who is now working with Jason Perlo, who has done a lot of good work coaching, a lot of good fighters. Um, I think it was a very good move for Dern from what we saw here in her fight. Um, she looked confident. She looked more physically developed in her upper body. Her back looked wider. Her shoulders looked more developed. Her arms looked more developed. She looked to be in the best shape of her career. Um, her striking was she wasn't afraid to strike. She didn't force her jujitsu. She used her striking when she needed to. And that's all to do with development and confidence. And I think Perillo had a lot to do with that. So this is a good, from, from the initial, uh, from initially what we've seen here between those two, that's a good pairing, and it could have us uh, looking at a lot of good things in the future. So that was a good move from Dern. I'm glad that Perlo is working with her, and um, yeah, they look great together. And what one thing, um, during the fight, Dern asked Perillo if her nose was broken. He kind of blew it off, said, don't worry about it, but he knew it was broken. And I think Darren knew it was broken. And at first I was said, well, that was curious and a little worrying because when a fighter asks about a broken nose, which in the big picture, unless it's crushed and flattened to your face and you can't get oxygen, a broken nose is, is something you can work through. It's inconvenient. It hurts. Um, I know, uh, but it's not something you can't overcome. And then when I found out later, it, it just kind of seemed that Darren wanted to know that her nose was broken because she said in a post-fight interview that she had never had a broken nose. So I think this was just kind of a, a thing on her MMA to-do checklist that she checked off. Got to get my nose broken at some point, right? And well, now that's checked off and she knows that no big deal. Hopefully, hopefully she doesn't get it fixed this uh, right now because if you're a fighter and you get your nose fixed, it's probably just going to get broken again. So, you know, Unless it's twisted and you can't breathe at all, just ride with it until you get to the end of your career because odds are you're going to need it to get fixed anyway again. So no reason to do that more than once, huh? Tony Ferguson. We had questions about Tony Ferguson going into this fight. They were related to his age. They were related to how well he would um, come away from that bloody loss to Justin Gaethje. And those questions remain. Uh, Charles Oliveira dominated him. And now we have to think, was it Oliveira's domination or was it Ferguson's fading? So Ferguson's uh, aging out, maybe. I, I hate to say that. He's getting up there in age. And with age, you slow down. And with his style, he is not a fighter who was ever afraid to move forward and take a lot of damage. So now his style might have caught up with him. Um, I, don't think we, I don't think we got any good answer to those questions against Oliveira because Oliveira looks so good. And so now we have to see what's up with Tony Ferguson. I thought he might get released. I don't think that'll happen. I think he will be someone the UFC will give at least one more fight to. And there, we'll then look at him and see how he goes in that fight. Um, if he wins, great. If he loses, then it's something to really think about. Uh, what worries me about Ferguson is who they're going to match him up against. I think they should match him up against someone who is ranked, but who is younger and up and coming. Not as in a gatekeeper status for Ferguson because he doesn't, he's still above that, I think. But as in, all right, here's who is moving up. As you slide down, this is a natural matchup. What can you deliver? And I think that's what um, Tony Ferguson needs in this matchup, in his next matchup. Charles, Charles Oliveira looked great. And like, like I said, he looked fantastic. 
eight win eight wins in a row now. Um, everything is coming together at the right time. What I worry about with Oliveira is is he going to get passed over? He should be in consideration for the winner of the Poirier McGregor fight. I don't know if he will be because that he might get passed by for the winner of the Chandler Gaethje matchup, which is being talked about. And I don't think that that should happen. Oliveira has paid his dues. He's been in the UFC for 10 years. He's on an eight-fight winning streak. He's built up a lot of good, uh, a lot of, he's he's in a spot where I think he should be the, the one that fights the winner of uh, um, Poirier and McGregor. He's paid his dues. Gaethje's paid his dues for sure. Chandler, Chandler has not paid any dues in the UFC. And in fact, Chandler has looked kind of childish at times by, by, by refusing to fight folks that want to fight him and just kind of waiting for the UFC to come along and give him a fight that he wants. I don't like that, and I don't think Chandler deserves at this point, having not fought at all for the UFC, to move right in and step over someone like Charles Oliveira, who is, like I said, 10 years in and on an eight-fight UFC winning streak, seven of those being stoppages. So we'll see how that goes. My fear my fear is that that the winner of the, the Gaethje-Chandler fight will uh, step right over Charles Oliveira, and I think that is totally and utterly unfair. All right, let's talk about the main event. Not much to say other than fantastic, fantastic fight. Probably going to be in, under consideration for fight of the year, even with recency bias. I think it's in there. I think it might be in the top two. Wiley Zhang and Joanna Zhernjacek are probably the other one. But that happened so long ago. I think we all need to watch those fights back to back a few times to see which one will be the fight of the year. If you're looking for a men's fight and a women's fight, well then you're you're in, in your then you're in luck cuz that's an easy decision to make then. Um I definitely 100% think that this fight should be run back before anyone else is even considered for a flyweight title fight. I know Cody Garbrandt was considered. I worry about his health because he seems to be maybe a long hauler as far as COVID-19. And even without the health issues, I don't think he's done anything to deserve a title fight. He had lost three fights in a row by knockout, and then he came back and, and got a knockout in at 135. So, okay, great. But one knockout win does not make uh, a title contender in a weight class that he never fought at. So if Garbrandt wants to fight at flyweight, I think you should make him fight one fight before a title fight. One, because... He's never fought in the division. Two, because he's coming off a serious illness. And three, he just doesn't deserve it. Moreno deserves that rematch. The fans are going to want to see a Moreno rematch with uh, Davis and Figueredo after, after Saturday night. And there's no way that Brandon Moreno does not deserve that title fight rematch. This was a fantastic fight. It had ups and downs. Both fighters looked great. Um, maybe the best flyweight fight in UFC history. Again, recency bias hard to tell but it if not the best it was one of the best and it it headlined a card that did not have a bad fight so again UFC 256 as you can tell from the 30 minutes of talking about it fantastic fantastic fight card and uh, I can't say enough but I need to move on to some different topics and those different topics are Dana White so when Charles Oliveira was brought up at the post-fight press conference. Uh, White said, the question was if he deserves to be in consideration for a title shot. And White said that um, the rankings are coming out on Monday or Tuesday and we'll see where he lands. 
And come on, that's bullshit. The UFC rankings are terrible. I wrote about it on Bloody Elbow. You can find that story. Just search my name, Trent Ryan Smith, Bloody Elbow rankings. And I go through why the rankings are not good. And the media panel is not a good representation of the MMA media as a whole. And again, I think the MMA media should be out of the rankings biz. Because if you're going to set up a title fight potentially with the rankings, now as a media member, you are influencing um, matchmaking and you are influencing money. And that is not the media's job. Especially it's not the media's job to do so for the UFC. So I would implore the media members once again to think about getting out of the rankings business because it's not their job. And it's not their job because, like I said, you are going, you're getting involved with money and matchmaking, and that's not something that the media should do. Not now, not ever. And they also should not provide content for the UFC for free. Uh, Dana White, remember Dana White, the man who passed over Kevin Holland for a Dana White Contender Series contract. This is what he had to say when he was asked about Holland at the post-fight press conference. He said he was really happy for him. I like the kid a lot. He's a really good kid. He's got a great attitude. He made a shitload of money this year. Couldn't happen to a better guy. This is a guy that a year ago, Dana White was shitting on and wouldn't sign him because he talked too much. And now he's praising him. That's uh, revisionist history, which the UFC does a lot of. They also did some of that when talking about, White also did some of that while talking about the flyweight division and Mick Maynard bringing it back um, after it had almost been um, scratched from the UFC, which that was White's doing getting almost getting rid of it so let's not forget white and the ufc earlier had cut brandon moreno so don't tell me about how great the flyweight's doing flyweight division is doing and don't tell me about you're a fight genius when you cut the guy who just fought in a title fight and you shit on the guy who is now 5-0 in 2020 and under consideration for fighter of the year and also who gives a shit if kevin holland made a lot of money and i don't think he made i mean in ufc terms he might have made a lot of money but big picture fight terms, no, no. Did he make millions? No. So he didn't make a lot of money. So that was just another way for White to kind of, you know, make everyone feel good about how the UFC pays. Don't. And don't forget, Dana White passed this guy over because he had a quote-unquote big mouth. Now he's singing his praises? Nah, you don't, you don't, get, to, you don't get to rewrite history. You don't get to um, make your own amends for your fuck-ups. Made a mistake? Self-proclaimed fight genius made a mistake and it judged someone on their personality more than their fighting skills, which is just stupid. But it's also Dana White. So Dana White also said that uh, business for the UFC has never been better in, in 2020. He said, great, great year. Broke all kinds of records. But let's not forget that earlier in the year when there was a little to do about fighter pay and guys were asking for, you know, maybe considered for a bump up in pay, White was quick to say that it's not the right time to ask for pay. Don't you know we're going through a pandemic? And now at the end of the year, White is bragging about how well the UFC is doing. So you can't have it both ways. So either shut up and pay up or quit mentioning how, how great the, the promotion is doing and you know more or less rubbing it in the face of the UFC fighters and the fans and the media and acting like everything is great. But, oh shit, we still don't have enough money to pay the fighters, even though we broke all these records. Doesn't work that way. Does not work that way. Um, this one was uh, earlier. 
I think on Friday or Thursday, Yahoo Sports did a profile of Dana White. And if you ever hear a, a profile referred to as a blowjob, this would be an example of that. And it's a, it's more or less a, a puff piece, uh, a profile done to build the, uh, the subject up. You see it a lot in uh, personality profiles or movie profiles, star profiles. It's not an uncommon practice. It's a gross practice. But Yahoo did run one, and I encourage you to go look at it. It made Dana White sound like some kind of savior and some kind of, you know, genius. And it also pointed out without irony or any kind of uh, deeper discussion how White is just dumb in how he thinks of himself and how he thinks of the UFC fighters. So it mentioned his, you know, he built his dream home and then the, and then the, the pandemic hit and he was, oh, what was me stuck in the dream home? And he had to work from a chair by his pool and how, you know, he had hit rock bottom. This is a man who is probably worth $500 million. So his rock bottom is sitting in a pool, sitting at his pool, conducting business um, from Las Vegas while a fighter's rock bottom, a fighter who is making $12,000. His rock bottom is trying to scrape enough food money together to, not to not to eat the train, he or she that is, not to eat the train, but to eat and support their family during a pandemic. White's going to be okay. If rock bottom is sitting by my pool with $500 million in the bank, you know, sign me up for rock bottom. I'll, I'll, I'll hit that rock bottom every day of the week. And then it mentioned that, you know, how he you know, worked through the pandemic and how great the UFC did with COVID-19 which now the UFC did not do great with COVID-19 and still continues not to do great with COVID-19, but that's another story. And then it mentioned that, you know, after Saturday night, he and his family are going to go on vacation. And part of that vacation is being on a 210 foot yacht. And so it's a, the whole profile was a example of a lack of self-awareness. These fighters, the fighters, the UFC in the UFC, the fighters that are making the money for white and his family, to build this dream home, to go on this 210-foot yacht on vacation, they're the ones that aren't making any money. They're the ones that are struggling. And yet we portray, portray Dana White as some kind of hero. Um, people have their, uh, people are mixed up. They have their priorities all screwed up. Uh, you're praising a guy who is making money off the blood and, and bones and, and brains of UFC fighters, and he can't even treat them like employees, can't give them any benefits, but he can take their money, the money they make, and split it with them and say, you know what, I'm going to take over 80% of that money and you guys share these, this, the, the leavings, the, the 20% or less. And if you don't like it, tough shit. So, yeah, if you want to see how not to write a profile or somebody, read that. If you want to see how to write a profile to get you access to somebody, also read that. But think about how... You know, how would you live with yourself if you're if you're building up this guy who is basically the worst uh, example of a capitalist knucklehead we have in in the sports business? And that's saying a lot. That's saying a lot. That's uh, saying you know, your Dan Snyder's, your Jerry Joneses, Dana White's worse than them. He doesn't get the negative press because he rules by fear. But when you look at something that in that in that kind of way, Dana White is worse than those guys. So terrible, terrible profile. Um, just not something that anyone should feel comfortable writing, but that's the business, isn't it? And, um, that's about all I have right now. 
And I know this is a long one, but I think UFC 256 deserved a deep dive because it was such a great event. And on that note, I will be back tomorrow. And everyone stay safe.